Chapter Two of Southern Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. Southern Arabia by James and Mabel Bent. Chapter Two: The Mounds of Ali. And now behold us excavators on the way to the scene of our labors six camels conveyed our tents a seventh carried goatskins full of water four asses groaned under our personal effects hens for consumption rode in a sort of lobster pot by the side of clattering pickaxes and chairs six policemen or peons were in our train each on a donkey one carried a paraffin lamp another a basket of eggs on the palm of his hand and as there were no reins or stirrups the wonder is that these articles ever survived as for ourselves we like everybody else rode sideways holding on like grim death before and behind especially when the frisky bahrain donkeys galloped at steeplechase pace across the desert for some distance around manama all is arid desert on which grow a few scrubby plants which women cut for fodder with sickle-like saws and carry home in large bundles on their backs sheikh esau's summer palace is in the centre of this desert a fortress hardly distinguishable from the sand around and consisting like eastern structures of this nature of nothing but one room over the gateway for his majesty and a vast courtyard two hundred feet long where his attendants erect their bamboo huts and tents around the whole runs a wall with bastions at each corner very formidable to look upon passing this the palm groves which are exceedingly fine are soon reached and offer delicious shade from the burning sun here amongst the trees were women working in picturesque attire red petticoats orange-colored drawers down to their heels and a dark blue covering over all this which would suddenly be pulled over the face at our approach if they had not on their masks or butras which admit of a good stare the butra is kind of a mask more resembling a bridle than anything else in shape it is like two diamond frames made of gold and colored braids fastened together by two of their lower edges this middle strip comes down the nose and covers the mouth and the sides come between the ears and eyes it affords very little concealment but is very becoming to most of its wearers particularly if they happen to be negresses on their heads would be baskets with dates or citrons and now and again a particularly modest one would dart behind a palm tree until that dangerous animal man had gone by about halfway to the scene of our labors, we halted by the ruins of an old Arab town, Baled al-Kadim. This ancient capital, dating from a period prior to the Portuguese occupation, still presents some interesting ruins. The old mosque, Madrasa-i-Abu Sedan, with its two slender and elegant minarets, so different from the horrible Wahhabi constructions of today, forms a conspicuous landmark for ships approaching the low-lying coasts of these islands around the body of the mosque runs a fine inscription in kufic letters and from the fact that the name of ali is joined with that of the prophet in profession of faith we may argue that this mosque was built during some persian occupation and was a shiite mosque the architecture too is distinctly persian recalling to us in its details the ruins of Rey, the rajas of tobit and the sultanate which we saw on the north of persia and has nothing arabian about it ruins of houses and buildings surround this mosque 
and here in the open space in the centre of the palm groves the barani assemble every thursday for a market in fact the place is generally known now as souk el kamis or thursday's market on our journey out not a soul was near but on our return we had an opportunity of attending one of these gatherings sheikh esau has here a tiny mosque just an open loggia where he goes every morning in summer time to pray and take his coffee beneath it he has a bath of fresh but not overly clean water where he and his family bathe often during the summer heats he spends the whole day here or else goes to his glorious garden about a mile distant near the coast where acacias hibiscus and almonds fight with one another for the mastery and form a delicious tangle another mile on closer to the sea is the fine ruined fortress of the portuguese giblia as the natives now call it just as they do one of the fortresses at mascat it covers nearly two acres of ground and is built out of the remains of the old persian town for many kufic inscriptions are let into the wall and the deep well in the centre is lined with them it is a regular bastion fortification of the sixteenth century with moat embrasures in the parapets and casemented embrasures in the re-entering angles of the bastions and is one of the finest specimens of portuguese architecture in the gulf an evidence of the importance which they attach to this island among the rubbish in the fort we picked up numerous fragments of fine nankin and celadon china attesting to the ubiquity and commerce of the former owners and attesting also to the luxury of the men who ruled here a luxury as fatal almost as the flanders wars to the well-being of the portuguese in the east our road led us through miles of palm groves watered by their little artificial conduits and producing the staple food of the island Sayyid bin omar talked to us much about the date mohammed said he began honor the date tree for she is your mother a true enough maxim in parched arabia where nothing else will grow when ripe the dates are put into a round tank called a madabash where they are exposed to the sun and air and throw off excessive juice which collects below after three days of this treatment they are removed and packed for exportation in baskets of palm leaves the bahraini for their own consumption love to add sesame seeds to their dates or ginger powder and walnuts pressed with them into jars these are called sirah and are originally prepared by being dried in the sun and protected at night then diluted date juice is poured over them the fruit which does not reach maturity is called salang and is given as food to cattle boiled with ground date stones and fish bones this makes an excellent sort of cake for milk cows this and the green dates also are given to the donkeys and to this food the bahraini attribute their great superiority the very poor also make an exceedingly unpalatable dish out of green dates mixed with fish for their own table or should i say floor nature here is not strong enough for the fruitification of the palm so at given seasons the palm is removed by cutting off the male spathes these they dry for twenty hours and then they take the flower twigs and deposit one or two in each bunch of the female blossom just as we were there they were very busy with the spathes and in thursday's market huge baskets of the male spathes were exposed for sale the palm groves are surrounded by dikes to keep the water in the date tree is everything to a bahraini he beats the green spadix with wooden implements to make fibre for his ropes in the dry state he uses it as fuel he makes his mats the only known form of carpet and bedding here out of it his baskets are made of the leaves 
from the fresh spathe by distillation a certain stuff called tara water is obtained of strong but agreeable smell which is much used for the making of sherbet much legendary lore is connected with the date the small round hole at the back is said to have been made by mohammed's teeth when one day he foolishly tried to bite one and in some places the expression at the same time a date and a duty is explained by the fact that in ramazan the day's fast is usually broken by first eating a date among all these date groves are the curious arab wells with sloping runs and worked by donkeys tall poles to which the skins are attached are date tree trunks down goes the skin bucket as the donkey comes up a steep slope in the ground and then as he goes down up it comes again full of water to be guided into the channel which fertilizes the trees by a slave who supports himself going up and adds his weight to that of the descending donkey by putting his arm through a large wooden ring hung at the donkey's shoulder day after day in our camp we heard the weird creaking from these wells very early in the morning and in the evening when the sun had gone down and we felt as we heard it what an infinite blessing is a well of water in a thirsty land leaving the palm groves and the portuguese fortress behind us we re-entered the desert to the southwest and just beyond the village of ali we came upon that which is the great curiosity of bahrain to investigate which was our real object in visiting the island for there begins that vast sea of sepulchral mounds the great necropolis of an unknown race which extends far and wide across the plain the village of ali forms as it were the culminating point it lies just on the borders of the date groves and there the mounds reach an elevation of over forty feet but as they extend further southward they diminish in size until miles away in the direction of rufa'a we found mounds elevated only a few feet above the level of the desert and some mere circular heaps of stones there are many thousands of these tumuli extending over an area of desert for many miles there are isolated groups of mounds in other parts of the islands, and a few solitary ones are to be found on the adjacent islets, on Mohorek, Arad, and Sitra. Complete uncertainty existed as to the origin of these mounds, and the people who constructed them, but from classical references and the result of our work, there can now be no doubt that they are of Phoenician origin. Herodotus gives us as a traditional current in his time that the forefathers of the Phoenician race came from these parts. The Phoenicians themselves believe in it. It is their own account of themselves, says Herodotus, and Strabo brings further testimony to bear on the subject, stating that two of the islands, now called Bahrain, were called Tyros and Arados. Pliny follows in Stabo's steps, but calls the island Tilos instead of Tyros, which may only be an error in spelling or may be owing to the universal confusion of R with L. Ptolemy in his map places Gera, the mart of ancient Indian trade and the starting point for caravans on the great road across Arabia, on the coast just opposite these islands, near where the town of El Katif is now, and accepts Strabo's and Pliny's names for the Bahrain Islands, calling them Tharos, Tilos or Tyros, and Arados. The fact is that all our information on the islands prior to the Portuguese occupation comes from the Periplus of Nearchus. Erosthenes, a naval officer of Alexander, states that the gulf was 10,000 stadia long, from Cape Armozum, i.e. Hermuz, to Pteridon, Kuwait, and the mouth of the Euphrates. Erosthenes of Thassos, who was of the company of Nearchus, 
made an independent geographical survey of the gulf on the arabian side and his statements are that on an island called ikaros now palugid just off of kuwait he saw the temple of apollo southwards at a distance of twenty four hundred stadia or forty-three nautical leagues he came on gera and close to it the islands of tyros and aridos which have temples like those of the phoenicians who were the inhabitants told him colonists from these parts from nearchus too we learn that the phoenicians had a town called sidon or sidodona in the gulf which he visited and on an island called tyrene was shown the tomb of erythrus which he describes as an elevated hillock covered with palms just like our mounds and erythrus was the king who gave his name to the gulf justin accepts the migration of the phoenicians from the persian gulf as certain and m renan says the primitive abode of the phoenicians must be placed on the lower euphrates in the centre of the great commercial and maritime establishments of the persian gulf as for the temples there are no traces of them left and this is also the case in syrian phoenicia doubtless they were all built of wood which will account for their disappearance as we ourselves during the course of our excavations brought to light objects of distinctly phoenician origin there would appear to be no longer any room for doubt that the mounds which lay before us were a vast necropolis of this mercantile race if so one of two suppositions must be correct either firstly that the phoenicians originally lived here before they migrated to the mediterranean and that this was the land of punt from which the punai got their name a land of palms like the syrian coast from which the race got their distorted greek appellation of phoenicians or secondly that these islands were looked upon by them as a sacred spot for the burial of their dead as the hindu looks upon the ganges and the persian regards the shrines of kerbela and mashed i am much more inclined to the former supposition judging from the mercantile importance of the bahrain islands and the excellent school they must have been for a race that was to penetrate all the then known corners of the globe to brave the dangers of the open atlantic and to reach the shores of britain in their trading ventures and if nomenclature goes for anything the name tyros and the still existing name of arad ought to confirm us in our belief and make certainty more certain our camp was pitched on this desert among the tumuli the ground was hard and rough covered with very sharp stones though dry it sounded hollow and it seemed as though there were water under it our own tent occupied a conspicuous and central place our servant's tent was hard by liable to be blown down by heavy gusts of wind which event happened the first night after our arrival to the infinite discomfiture of the bazaar master who by the way had left his grand clothes at home and appeared in the desert clad in a loose coffee-coloured dressing-gown with a red band about his waist around the tents swarmed turban diggers who looked as if they had come out in their nightgowns dressing-gowns and bath-sheets these lodged at night in the bamboo village of ali hard by a place for which we developed the profoundest contempt for the women thereof refused to pollute themselves by washing the clothes of infidels and our garments had to be sent all the way to manama to be cleansed a bamboo structure formed a shelter for the kitchen around which on the sand lay curious coffee-pots bowls and cooking utensils which would have been eagerly sought after for museums in europe the camel which fetched the daily supply of water from afar grazed around on the coarse desert herbage the large white donkey which went into town for marketing by day and entangled himself in the tent ropes by night 
was also left to wander at his own sweet will this desert camp was evidently considered a very peculiar sight indeed and no wonder that for the first week of our residence there we were visited by all the inhabitants of bahrein who could find time to come so far it was very weird to sit in our tent door the first evening and look at the great mound we were going to dig into the next morning and think how long it had stood there in the peace its builders hoped for it there seemed to be quite a mournful feeling about disturbing it but archaeologists are a ruthless body and this was to be the last night it would ever stand in its perfect shape after all we were full of hope of finding out the mystery of its origin the first attack the next morning was most amusing to behold my husband headed the party looking very tall and slim with his legs outlined against the sky as he with all the rest in single file and in fluttering array wound first round the mound to look for a good place to ascend and then went straight up they were all amazed when i appeared and gave orders to the division under my command they looked very questioningly indeed but as the persians had learnt to respect me the bahraini became quite amenable the dimensions of the mound on which we began our labors were as follows thirty-five feet in height seventy-six feet in diameter and one hundred and fifty-two paces in circumference we chose this in preference to the higher mounds the tops of which were flattened somewhat and suggested the idea that they had fallen in ours on the contrary was quite rounded on the summit and gave every hope that in digging through it we should find whatever was inside in statu quo at a distance of several feet from most of the mounds are traces of an outer encircling wall or bank of earth similar to walls found around certain tombs in lydia and also around a tumulus in tara in ireland and this encircling wall was more marked around some of the smaller and presumably more recent tombs at the outer edge of the necropolis in some cases several mounds would appear to have been clustered together and to have had an encircling wall common to them all we dug from the top of our mound for fifteen feet with great difficulty through sort of a conglomerate earth nearly as hard as cement before we reached anything definite then suddenly this close earth stopped and we came upon a layer of large loose stones entirely free from soil which layer covered the immediate top of the tombs for two feet beneath these stones and immediately on the flat slabs forming the roof of the tomb had been placed palm branches which in the lapse of ages had become white and crumbly and had assumed the flaky appearance of asbestos this proved that the palm flourished on bahrein at the date of these tombs and that the inhabitants were accustomed to make use of it for constructive purposes six very large slabs of rough unhewn limestone which had obviously come from jebel dukan lay on the top of the tomb forming a roof one of these was six feet in length and two feet two inches in depth the tomb itself was composed of two chambers one immediately over the other and approached by a long passage like the drumos of rock-cut greek tombs which was full of earth and small stones the entrance as was that of all the tombs was towards the sunset this passage was fifty-three feet in length extending from the outer rim of the circle to the mouth of the tomb around the outer circle of the mound itself ran a wall of huge stones evidently to support the weight of earth necessary to conceal the tomb and large unhewn stones closed the entrance to the two chambers of the tomb at the head of the passage we first entered the upper chamber the floor of which was covered with gritty earth 
it was thirty feet long and at the four corners were recesses two feet ten inches in depth and the uniform height of this chamber was four feet six inches the whole surface of the interior to the depth of two or three inches above the other debris was covered with yellow earth composed of tiny bones of the jerboa that rat-like animal which is found in abundance on the shores of the persian gulf there was no sign of any recent ones and only a few fragments of skulls to show what this yellow earth had been we then proceeded to remove the rubbish and sift it for what we could find the chief objects of interest consisted in innumerable fragments of ivory fragments of circular bones pendants with holes for suspension obviously used as ornaments by this primitive race the torso of a small statue in ivory the hoof of a bull fixed on to an ivory pedestal evidently belonging to a small statue of a bull the foot of another little statue and various fragments of ivory utensils many of these fragments had patterns inscribed on them rough patterns of scales rosettes and circling chains and the two parallel lines common to so many ivory fragments found at Camariros and now in the british museum in fact the decorations on most of them bear a close and unmistakable resemblance to ivories found in phoenician tombs on the shores of the mediterranean and to the ivories in the british museum from nimrud in assyria universally accepted as having been executed by phoenician artists those cunning workers in ivory and wood whom solomon employed in the building of his temple and before the spread of egyptian and greek art the travelling artists of the world the ivory fragments we found were given into the hands of mr a s murray of the british museum who wrote to my husband as follows i have not the least doubt judging from the incised patterns from bull's foot part of a figure etc that the ivories are of phoenician workmanship the pottery found in this tomb offered no very distinctive features being coarse and unglazed but the numerous fragments of ostrich eggshells colored and scratched with rough patterns and bands also pointed to a phoenician origin or at least to a race of wide mercantile connection and in those days the phoenicians were the only people likely to combine in their commerce ostrich eggshells and ivory we also found small shapeless pieces of oxidized metal brass or copper there were no human bones in the upper chamber but those of a large animal presumably a horse the chamber immediately beneath was much more carefully constructed it was the exact same length but was higher being six feet seven inches and the passage was wider it was entirely coated with cement of two qualities the upper coat being the finest in which all round the walls at intervals of two feet were holes sloping inward and downward in similar holes in one of the other tombs we opened we found traces of wood showing that poles on which to hang drapery had been inserted the ground of this lower chamber was entirely covered with a thin brown earth of a fibrous nature in appearance somewhat resembling snuff it was a foot in depth and evidently the remains of the drapery which had been hung around the walls prior to the use of coffins the phoenicians draped their dead and amongst this substance we found traces of human bones thus we were able to arrive at the system of sepulture employed by this unknown race evidently their custom was to place in the upper chamber broken utensils and the body of an animal belonging to the deceased and to reserve the lower chamber for the corpse enshrouded in drapery for the use of this upper chamber our parallels are curiously enough all phoenician 
Perrault gives us an example of two-storied tombs in the cemetery of Amrit in Phoenicia, where also bodies were embedded in plaster to prevent decay prior to the introduction of the sarcophagus, reminding us of the closely cemented lower chambers in our mounds. A mound containing a tomb with one chamber over the other was, in 1888, observed in Sardinia, and is given by Della Mamora as of Phoenician origin. Here, however, the top of the tomb is conical, not flat as in our mounds, which would point to a latter development of the double chamber, which eventually blossomed forth into the lofty mausolea of the later Phoenician epoch and the grandiose tombs of Hellenic structure. Also at Carthage, that very same year that we were in Bahrain, i.e. 1889, excavations brought to light certain tombs of early Phoenician settlers, which also have the double chamber. In answer to Perrault's assertion that all early Phoenician tombs were hypogea, we may say that as the Bahrain Islands offer no facility for this method of sepulture, the closely covered-in mound would be the most natural substitute before leaving the tombs we opened a second and a smaller one of coarser construction which confirmed in every way the conclusions we had arrived at in opening the larger tomb near the village of ali one of the largest mounds has been pulled to pieces for stones by creeping into the cavities opened we were able to ascertain that the chambers in this mound were similar to those in the mound we had opened only they were double on both stories and the upper story was also coated with cement Two chambers ran parallel to each other, and were joined at the two extremities. Sir M. Durand also opened one of the mounds, but unfortunately the roof of the tomb had fallen in, which prevented him from obtaining any satisfactory results. But from the general appearance, it would seem to have been constructed on exactly the same lines as our larger one. Hence we had the evidence of four tombs to go upon, and felt that these must be pretty fair specimens of what the many thousands were which extended around us. End of chapter 2